It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey everyone, welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. This is a special episode about the life and speeches of Sadie Alexander, the first African-American economist. I'm Cardiff Garcia. The first black economist, yes. The first PhD, yes. Um, Not just black woman, but the first black economist in the country. But nobody would hire her. Sadie Alexander received her PhD in economics from the University of Pennsylvania in 1921. She was the first African-American economist to hold the degree, and then later that decade, in the 1920s still, she would also graduate from UPenn's law school. So at the time, she was, and I'm not even remotely exaggerating here, one of the best educated people on the planet. She was also a black female intellectual, and this was America in the 1920s, so nobody would give her a job. So she went on to work instead for her husband's law firm and spent her life as a civil rights activist and lawyer in Philadelphia, and... In that role, her life was full of achievement, but she also never lost her interest in economics. And even though she never worked as a professional economist, she also never stopped giving speeches about economics. And those speeches covered, presciently, a bunch of issues that are the subjects of intense economic debate to this very day. Things like gender and racial inequalities, the importance of a labor market at full employment, whether the federal government should guarantee everybody a job the economic impact of immigration, minimum wages, unions. Yet in all the time I've been reporting on economics, until about a year ago, I'd never even heard of her. And that was until I came across a YouTube clip showing a lecture about Sadie Alexander by Bucknell University economist Nina Banks. So it'll be Nina Banks' voice that you'll be hearing most often in this podcast. It was her voice that you heard at the top of the show. She's the economist who's done the most to remind people of the life and work of Sadie Alexander. And having combed through the extensive archives of Sadie Alexander's life that are now housed at the University of Pennsylvania, Nina wrote this great piece that I also read titled The Black Worker, Economic Justice, and the Speeches of Sadie Alexander. So... Sadie Alexander was born in 1898 um, into a prominent African-American family. The Mosells and Tanners were both part of the elite, black elite in Philadelphia. They were very accomplished. Her father was the first African-American who who graduated from the law school at Penn. A family of firsts. Uh, Many, 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 (laughs) many, many firsts. Absolutely. Her grandfather, Bishop Tanner in the AME Church, Um, So many firsts in her family, very accomplished. But after she was born, her father left his family. And so her mother ended up moving the family to live with her sister and her brother-in-law in in Washington, D.C. 
Her brother-in-law was a professor at Howard University. And so Sadie grew up in um, Washington, D.C., with the influence of this academic environment connected to Howard University. But she also attended the very prestigious M Street School, which was a black school, an all-black school in Washington, D.C. at the time. Um, later, it, be, it was renamed the Dunbar School. That's a middle school and a high school? High school, that's right. Absolutely. And so... She sometimes went back to Philadelphia to live with her grandfather and was influenced by his religious teachings, um, Christian and Jewish rabbis. And so that apparently had a great deal of influence on her thinking as well. She was very, very um, religious. Um, and so I think that when you read her analysis, as you did, um, the sense of a moral imperative comes through in her writings as well. And when she talks about the, the role of government in the economy, for example, um, or the rights of African-Americans. So she graduated from the M Street School in 1915. And then she went to Penn, the University of Pennsylvania, um, for college. Her mother wanted her to attend Howard University, but because her family had connections to Penn, um, she insisted that Sadie attend Penn. So she went there. She spent three years there working on her undergraduate degree. She experienced a lot of hardships. She was shunned by her classmates. Um, the, the college was segregated along the lines of gender, and so she took classes um, with other women, um, most of whom were white. And so she was really shunned because of her race, um, and she experienced other forms of discrimination as well while she was an undergraduate. She eventually went back and she obtained her doctorate degree from Penn in 1921. And as you said, she um, obtained it along with two other African-American women. I think technically she was probably the second of those um, women. There were three in 1921. There's some controversy over whether or not you give the label first to whose commencement came first versus <laughs> who finished their coursework first. Yes. But it was all part of the same yes. class. So she was the first uh, economist uh, PhD, economics she PhD. She is the first black economist. Yes, the first PhD. Yes, um, not just black woman, but the first black economist um, uh, in the country, right? So three black women, 1921 PhDs, and that was, you know, quite a milestone. But nobody would hire her. No one would hire a black woman um, as an economist, as an academic. So she ended up working for um, North Carolina Insurance Company in um, Durham, North Carolina, for a couple of years, got married in 1923, and then moved back to Philadelphia with her husband, Raymond Alexander, after he finished his law degree at Harvard. They um, had met when they were both undergraduates at Penn. And so then she decided, because she couldn't get a job in Pennsylvania, even though she had a doctorate degree, um, she couldn't get a job even as a high school teacher, she decided to go to law school. She went to law school because she wanted to open up opportunities for other African-Americans. 1927, she finished and became the first black woman to get a doctorate, <laughs> to get a uh, law degree in Pennsylvania and to practice law. And again, she faced discrimination in hiring, even though she had both the law degree and the Ph.D., None of the law firms in the area would, would offer her a position. So um, her husband, Raymond, offered her a position over the objection of two of his partners. Now, the city did hire her as an assistant city solicitor. 
And so that was remarkable. But none of the private law firms would offer her a position. So she worked um, with her husband, and they had a very successful practice. Um, They fought against segregation in Philadelphia. They would send in testers to establishments, and when they found out that they were violating the law, um, they would file a charge against them, file suit against them. Um, So she was very active um, in her legal career. When she was at the M Street School, she was influenced by Carter Woodson um, more than any other um, teacher there. Uh, Carter Woodson, um, great African-American historian, influenced her thinking with respect to the role of African-Americans in the economy. And so this was something that she always promoted in her speeches. She talked about the accomplishments of African-Americans because she, she really was concerned about um, the role that education played in the United States in trying to uh, foster a sense of inferiority in the minds of African Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, and she experienced that, I think, when she went to Penn. There were, you know, was an incident in her sociology class where a professor asked students to list on paper inferior and, su- and superior races. And most of the students listed African Americans or blacks or Negroes, whatever the term was at that time, as inferior. Mm-hmm. And some of the black students did too. Mm-hmm. So that was always something that was very important to her. Um, So Carter Woodson influenced her thinking. W.B. Du Bois also Mm -hmm. influenced her thinking. He was also someone who was active at the M Street School or who spoke and was a family friend as well. So I think those were some of her her major um, influences. Yeah, you you write in your paper on her life and speeches about two dominant strains of thinking from African-American intellectuals in terms of how black workers could best advance. Uh, One that was associated with Frederick Douglass and W.B. Du Bois, which you just mentioned. Another one associated with Booker T. Washington. Can you tell us what those were uh, and maybe in which direction did Sadie Alexander lean uh, in her early years as a scholar? Sure, absolutely. So in the 1920s, Right. So some of the early speeches that I looked at were from the 1920s. And I would say in those early speeches, she leaned towards Booker T. Washington in the sense that she talked about the need for African-Americans to develop their business skills so that they could. She didn't use the word useful, but that was really the sense that I had so that they could become useful in the economy, that they would um, be a part of this expanding, this growing um, national economy. And so I think that was consistent with Booker T. Washington's emphasis on self-help. Mm-hmm. Um, but then later, she really starts to advocate more and more that African-Americans um, be agitators for change, right? And so that would put her more in line with Du Bois and some of the other um, more radical. I use the word radical in that particular article. Mm. Um, you know, the, the radical tradition of um, being more active or activist. But she was also, I think, radical in the sense that she understood the importance of workers forming alliances around their common interest as workers. In other words, um, black and white workers who had not been organizing together because labor unions were racially segregated in the early part, up until the early part of the 20th century, actually up until the mid part of the 20th century, they were racially segregated. And so she recognized the need for black and white workers to band together mm-hmm. um, in their common interest in trying to um, press for higher wages. Here's a couple of passages from speeches in those early years and which Nina cites in her paper. They're going to be read by my colleague Claire Manabog. In the first speech, you'll notice the emphasis on addressing racial inequality through an alliance between white and black workers that would address economic inequality. 
The association between the various racial groups employed in a factory will prove an important factor in solving the laborers' problems. The real seat of racial friction is between the working groups, whose resistance to change in the economic status of a competing group invariably expresses itself in what we commonly define as race or class prejudice. Could the great mass of white workers learn from industrial experience with Negro workers that they have a common purpose in life, the protection of their bargaining power, and that the sooner the untouched wealth of Negro labor is harnessed into this common purpose, the better can they bargain with capital? Then and only then would industrial friction subside. And in the next excerpt, you're going to hear Sadie emphasizing that African Americans should focus on gaining the skills that will enable them to work in the industrial sector and manufacturing, because that was the time the high-tech sector, as people moved away from agriculture. Though curiously enough, she doesn't emphasize working in the services professions, like the law. Go into the schools of business, young men and women, and then do not come out and moan because some white firm will not hire you as a salesman. Do you aspire to sell the goods another man has manufactured or to manufacture goods for him to buy and sell for you? Go into business, young men. Go into business, young women. Make yourselves part of an economic system which has placed America as a formidable economic competitor of England, the greatest exporting nation the world has ever known. But Sadie continually updated her views on how to achieve economic justice for exploited black workers throughout her career, especially after the Depression and the way that the New Deal policies worked against black workers. And her concerns included, uniquely for economists at the time, a focus on the status of black women. And she would come to see the great migration of African-Americans from southern states to northern cities as an opportunity to vote black representatives into office, which increasingly she believed would be necessary. Um, yeah. There's something else that was uh, that was interesting about about her, some of her early beliefs. And you wrote later about how she her beliefs actually evolved quite a bit over time. Yes. But early on, she thought that it would make sense for white workers and black workers to essentially organize together. In other words, that as laborers, they were the ones, if they banded together, that they could sort of collectively bargain, that they could get a better deal from the capital owners, from yes. the people who owned the companies. You wrote, uh, I think critically uh, in your paper, though, that she neglected the possibility that white capitalists and white workers might have a more common alliance than white workers would uh, with black workers. Yes, absolutely. And I think that we, you know, that that has been a problem historically in the United States. So, she, you know, she didn't talk about that. She, I think that to some extent she was a bit, I don't want to say naive. She was brilliant. So I, I'm not going to use, I'm going to walk that, I'm going to walk that word <laughs> back. I'm going to walk that word back. Yeah, she, she didn't focus sufficiently on the problem of white workers putting their racial interest above their economic interest, right? So white workers deciding that they were, you know, more interested in um, having racial privileges with respect to black workers um, than forming an alliance with black workers and having, you know, equal wages with black workers, which could have been a little bit higher. Mm -hmm. And yet, even in those, uh, in those early years of her writing and thinking, she already had an emphasis on the potential role of black women that, as you write, was not always shared by other black economic thinkers, um, that this was a really this was really a point of emphasis for her uh, and something that uh, essentially I think would guide her writing throughout the rest of her career. Yes, yes. And so, you know, the question is, was she a feminist? I, I you know, I would say yes. 
she probably would not have thought of herself in that light. But I think that her her actions indicated to me that she was very much a somebody who put the interest of women um, as, you know, primary. So I would label her as a feminist. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yes, yeah, she wrote very favorably about black women who were employed. Um, and, you know, I never had the sense that if we think back to the mid part of the 19th century into the late part of the 19th century, where it was really unseemly for for many women to be employed outside of the household. But for many black women, they really didn't have an option because black men's earnings were were low. They were irregular. So a lot of black women worked for pay outside of the household. She never made apologies for that, never um, thought that it was a problem. The problem for her was that black women were not employed as productively as they could have been employed. So, I, I mean, I think that that was something that was very progressive um, and forward thinking in her in her compared to um, certainly the other um, economist at the time who was prominent, Abram Harris, Jr., um, who um, wrote about working class issues and black workers, did not devote attention to the concerns of black women. And so for Sadie, Sadie really thought that the status of the black community could really be assessed in terms of the well-being of black women. And so, you know, later on, you know, when she talks about the conditions that are affecting African-Americans during the Great Depression, she was especially concerned about what was happening to black women in terms of loss of jobs, because for her, the low status of black women was, you know, I guess an indicator of the, the failing status of the entire community. Let's let's talk about now how the Great Depression might have influenced her thinking. I'm guessing that this is maybe where she started to move away from uh, what you noted earlier as like this sort of self-help philosophical conception of how the black worker should help himself and herself and maybe towards a more progressive idea of including social agitation and other ways of, you know, collectively organizing and bargaining. Yes, right. So a lot of things were going on during that time, and I think in terms of her thinking with the Great Depression. Right. So she's concerned about the impact of the depression on black workers generally um, in terms of wages and access to jobs. She was concerned also about jobs that black people had traditionally had, elevator operators, for example, or domestic service that she noted that even those jobs were being lost during the Great Depression. And so there were particular pieces of um, legislation that were passed during the New Deal that she thought um, were having a detrimental impact on black workers. And I think that those have been well noted elsewhere um, as well. Let's note them here anyways. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's see. The Agricultural Adjustment um, Act um, in terms of trying to encourage farmers to plow under some of their crops because there was overproduction. And so there was a provision that the landlord should provide payments to their tenant workers and white landowners were keeping the money. Um, and eventually, when they were called on that, eventually they began to let their, you know, let their tenants go, right? So that was, of course, um, a detrimental impact of, of a piece of legislation. What else? Um, minimum wage legislation um, that was set at a lower lower level for black workers. And you have to keep in mind that that the New Deal legislation, I think, was passed as a compromise with Southern Democrats. Yeah. Right. And Southern Democrats wanted to have this population of African-Americans who were still very much, I think, compliant, um, subservient. And so 
some of the key provisions of the Social Security Act, for example, 1935, excluded the major sectors that employed black workers, um, domestic service and agricultural sector mm-hmm. as well. You know, so those were the kinds of acts that, that really concerned her. And so she she referred to it. One of them is the Negro Reduction Act um, because of the impact that it was having on job loss for African-Americans. Yeah. So she's very critical of um, New Deal policies in that sense. And so her thinking starts to change and she she becomes concerned that African-Americans really need to agitate more aggressively in terms of making appeals to legislators. And eventually, and I think this is, moves us into the World War II era as well, I think she becomes more dismayed by the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. So she was a loyal Republican party of Lincoln at that time, critical of the New Deal policies, Democratic administration. And a problem with the Southern Democrats exerting so much control over uh, the Democratic Party at large. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's understandable that she would have been critical of of all of those policies and the impact on African-Americans. And so, yeah, so her her thinking shifts and she believes that African-Americans need to elect African-Americans to look out for the interest of other African-Americans. Worth also noting a trend from the time of African-Americans migrating from the South to northern clusters where they could exert a little bit more political power, right? In other words, this became, I guess, more realistic uh, yeah. as time went on. Yeah, yeah. And so that's a big part of the story here is the Great Migration. And it dawned on me, and I should have noted this earlier since I wrote a dissertation on the Great Migration, <laughs> 100 years since that process really began, 1916 until 1970. So her dissertation focused on the Great Migration and the concerns that she had about migrants. Um, There was a lot of animosity directed towards migrants in Philadelphia, concerns that they were going to um, overwhelm the city in terms of um, economics, that they would be a drain on the economy, that they would commit lots of crimes, that they would bring diseases into the community, that they wouldn't be able to adjust to life there. She continued to have a concern for migrants to that city. So, you know, this is such an important migration culturally, you know, in terms of, you know, you can think of the Harlem Renaissance or Chicago Renaissance, but it was also important because African Americans were finally able to concentrate their vote. And so we see that some areas are able to um, elect black people into office, people in the North, right? So that was a very important consequence as um, as an outcome of the, the great migration of African Americans to the North, right? They're able to exercise their vote, but they weren't able to vote in the South. And not only were they able to able to exercise their vote, they were able to concentrate their vote, as you said, and to elect blacks into office. Nina makes the point that Sadie's thinking really changed in response to having witnessed the mob violence and other kinds of racial strife that resulted from white workers perceiving to have been in competition with black workers. And she hit upon a solution that still has resonance today. And so when we get to World War II... That's when we really see the progression of her ideas with respect to working class alliances um, along the lines of race and the need for job guarantees, right? And so that could go back to not only the racial conflicts of 1919, but also some of the problems that existed in the provision of recovery programs in the Great Depression in terms of not being provided in an equitable manner. World War II happens, and now she's really calling for the government to provide jobs, which is something amazing. So she was arguing that the government needed to ensure full employment 
that when the, in 1939, she started thinking about these ideas in 1940s as well. So the government, antici- government anticipated that it would cut back jobs by about 40% after the war ended. And she was very concerned because she believed that black workers would be the ones who would disproportionately lose jobs. They were the last ones hired in many cases, so they had less seniority. And even if they had the same amount of time on the job because of the tendency for racial-based discrimination, she knew that black men and black women would be likely to be fired first. So she really began to argue for um, workers to band together, um, to organize together, and for the government to guarantee jobs to every able-bodied person who wanted a job, who was willing and able to work at a job. That was really her demand, which was amazing. Yeah. Um, you know, morally, she believed that it was necessary, but she also believed that it was a citizenship right and a human right, a fundamental right of um, that humans should have. And in one of her speeches from that time, Sadie makes a point that Keynesians will recognize. Full employment is the only solution to the economic subjugation of the Negro and of the great masses of white labor. If full employment by determination of the people and the government could be obtained for the destructive purposes of war... Why can we not unite to achieve it for the constructive purposes of maintaining the peace? Sadie also argued that the government should be spending more money on things like clearing slums, providing electricity, decreasing illiteracy. And she sometimes argued that guaranteeing everybody a job could be justified on the grounds that it would expand freedom. The freedom from want, the freedom from poverty, the freedom from the fear of knowing that there are massive numbers of unemployed people on the street. But as Nina points out, Even as Sadie argued for what was considered a radical idea, she still believed in the power of competition and markets. No, she was absolutely not a socialist. She um, was very much pro-capitalism, regulated capitalism. I think that her ideas were very similar to Keynes in that sense. Mm -hmm. Keynes was somebody who favored capitalism but regulated capitalism. He was comfortable in a capitalist framework, and so was she. She often made very negative um, assessments about socialism and communism. She absolutely was not a socialist. Yeah, and you also note in your paper, um, she very much thought that all of these changes should happen within the framework of the rule of law. Yes. Um, her thinking fell, I think, within uh, what what's labeled formally uh, as like the black radical tradition. But the word radical then meant something very different from what it means now. Right. In other words, she was arguing for um, very potent, very necessary changes. But she was arguing for full employment in parts so that those changes could happen peacefully. Yes, you're absolutely right. It was always within a peaceful, nonviolent framework. And she made that very clear many times, especially during the civil rights movement. I use the word radical in this, in two, you know, I guess in two sense. One is ties it to the framework of political agitation in the tradition of Du Bois. But I also use radical in the sense that she was always pro-labor and focused on the needs of the black masses, even though she herself was a part of the black elite. She was sympathetic to the concerns of the black masses. And so black radicals often focused on the needs of the masses, the working class, as something that was very fundamental to achieving um, citizenship rights. 
right? And so this is the link between economic rights and political rights. There were many people who argued that in order to be able to fully realize one's political rights, that economic rights had to also be achieved. Yes. I'm going to quote you to yourself now. Uh, Here's you writing uh, about what she thought. Struggle for black Americans to fully exercise their democratic rights was contingent upon their ability to secure these fundamental economic rights. That's a theme that also seems to have underpinned uh, her career. Yes, absolutely. And that's, you know, and that's what I found from reading through her documents over a 60-year period. It was always present, even though as a lawyer she was focused on civil rights, there was always the element of economics, the urgency in terms of um, the social class position of African Americans that was driving her, her efforts. Sadie gave a speech in June 1964 in which she said that even though the education gap between black and white Americans was starting to shrink, the distance between the economic outcomes of the two groups didn't seem to be shrinking much at all. Negroes who make up more than 90% of the country's non-white population are generally found in low-skilled, poorly paid, and frequently declining occupations. Relatively few of the occupations enjoyed by Negroes can be characterized by growing labor demand. The Negro male is largely employed as a laborer or an operative. At the same time this trend is continuing, Negroes are narrowing the educational gap between themselves and whites. The educational level of non-whites rose two years during the past decade as compared with a one-year rise for whites. In spite of this educational improvement, the economic gap between Negroes and whites is becoming wider. Sadly, we've just lived through another long stretch of time in the U.S. during which some of the income, wealth, and employment gaps between white Americans and black Americans have once again widened. A recent paper, for instance, from economists at the Federal Reserve found that the difference between average wages of black men and women and their white counterparts has actually grown since 1979. Other measures related to employment have also either worsened or haven't much improved. Just why it is that the outcomes for different racial and ethnic groups haven't converged more haven't become more equal. That's become more and more a topic of study for economists. Economists like Derek Hamilton and William Darity Jr. And they refer to what they do as stratification economics. Now, Hamilton credits Sadie as an early pioneer and inspiration for his work, and he explains the concept of stratification economics like this. So we observe inequality across groups, gender, race, caste, um, in many different societies, and we are dissatisfied with the myopic view of individual optimization and its approach to try to explain economic outcomes. We think such an approach does a disservice to understanding this persisting group inequality because they ultimately come down to simple human capital explanations, that there's something either deficient with the group in terms of their attitudes, norms towards success in some endeavor, or they simply lack education. Well, that doesn't seem to be consistent with what we observe. We observed that even for, for instance, black Americans who have high levels of education, they don't have comparable employment rates, comparable wealth rates as their white counterparts in those education. In fact, we know with something like wealth inequality, blacks who've attained a college degree typically live in households that have two thirds of the wealth of a white family where the head dropped out of high school. So stratification economics tries to understand structure. So we understand social structure from sociology to try to incorporate how groups might position themselves along hierarchy and create barriers that privilege their group identity. Um, We also understand from social psychology things like stereotype threat, things like implicit bias, how stigma 
itself might have economic consequences and might impact some various outcomes. And then finally, we understand from political science how laws and structures are established so as to privilege preferred groups. So identity becomes something that has almost an economic commodity, something that individuals might invest in if there is an economic return associated with it. And it almost becomes rational if the outcome is simply to have more and more and accumulate more and more. You might set up a structure that privileges your own group at the expense of other groups. Sadie Alexander died 28 years ago in 1989. But I asked Nina about some of these trends and specifically what she thinks Sadie would have made of what's happened ever since she passed away. What do you think she would feel about how much progress has been made either since then or maybe since since she retired a little bit earlier than that? Because it seems now that we have less overt or less explicit discrimination. But on the other hand, uh, we still have income and wealth disparities uh, that break down along um, racial backgrounds. We still have uh, jobless rates that are different between uh, white, black, Hispanic workers. Do you think she'd be disappointed uh, or do you think she'd be hopeful or maybe both? I think that she would be hopeful. I think that she would certainly note, as you have, the inequities that still exist, the um, disparities with respect to wealth, earnings, home ownership, um, you know, the very high unemployment rates of African Americans, the high poverty rate. Um, you know, so unemployment rate for African Americans tends to be twice as high as the unemployment rate for white Americans, um, whether we are in an economic recession or not. Poverty rates are oh, uh, typically um, double, more than double white poverty rates in the United States. So I think that she would be um, absolutely disappointed by that. I mean, she would note some of the successes that we've achieved along the way, and there have been many successes. Mm-hmm. As I read this article again um, yesterday, I thought about her focus on migrants, for example, in an earlier era mm-hmm. and the animosity directed towards migrants and you know the discussions that we're having today in the United States about migrants from Mexico or from Syria for that matter. And so I think that she would have been very alarmed by those discussions. I also brought in a quote um, that doesn't appear in this article. It's from another article that I have. Let me read it to you. Um, because she was very much concerned that economists had a responsibility to try to explain economic concepts in a manner that was accessible, that was understandable, instead of using a lot of jargon. And she thought that that was necessary in order to try to diminish anxiety over the state of the economy. So in 1939, she gave a speech in Detroit, um, and she was worried about the impact of economic insecurity. In other words, what would happen at the end of the war when people lost jobs? And so she stated, quote, the cause of economic insecurity and how it can be overcome must be made clear to all classes of the public in language that each can understand in order that America may await the orderly solution of the problem and not in despair turn over its freedom in exchange for the vain promises of a self-proclaimed Messiah. Let me read that last part again. (laughs) Ah, 
Uh, Let me read the whole statement again. The cause of economic insecurity and how it can be overcome must be made clear to all classes of the public in language that each can understand in order that America may await the orderly solution of the problem and not in despair turn over its freedom in exchange for the vain promises of a self-proclaimed Messiah. You know, so she was worried about events that were taking place in Germany, events that were taking place in the United States, and the possibility for tyranny or fascism to develop in the United States as people looked for scapegoats um, because of their um, sense of economic insecurity. And I would say that 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 is really what's happening in the United States today. That's my sense, that her quote is very much in sync with um, the tendency on the part of many people to feel economic or cultural anxieties, and then to scapegoat other populations. I think that that we are living in the midst of that right now, and I think that it's very worrisome. And so she would be out there on the stage talking about it. Yeah, so prescient and anti-jargon. Really quite a lot to like about her. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Uh, One of the uh, tragic ironies, if if that's the right word, it might not be, of her work and her life seems to be that she was trying to elevate into the public consciousness trends that were largely being overlooked. And yet within the realm of economics, uh, she herself uh, essentially became a kind of forgotten figure. Uh, I see your work as essentially trying to reintroduce her thinking and her importance to maybe a new generation of economists, economic thinkers. Uh, is that how you Absolutely. view your work? Absolutely, to any and all generation <laughs> of economists. I'm a feminist economist, and one of the things, one of our big projects is to try to locate and to recover the writings of some of the early women economists. And so that's really what I've been trying to do with Sadie Alexander. And not just as a woman economist, but also as a black economist, as an African-American economist as well, to try to analyze her writings, to find the economic content, and to incorporate it within economic analysis. And it's starting to happen. And that pleases me immensely. Well, I for one hope you succeed. Thank you. There's something I think I need to acknowledge about this podcast episode, and it's a point made by economist Julianne Malveaux, which is that there is one sense in which Sadie Alexander's life does represent a loss, not a loss to the world or even necessarily to Sadie herself, because she was successful and influential throughout her life as a civil rights lawyer and activist, but rather a loss to the economics profession. Because from her speeches, from her prescience, from her intelligence, It seems likely that she would have been one hell of a professional economist or an academic economist if only she'd had the opportunity to start that career full-time as a young adult. But for this episode, at least, producer Amy Keene and I wanted to highlight, to reintroduce, those economic contributions from Sadie Alexander that we do have, and not dwell too much on the path that she couldn't take. But still, since this is an economics podcast, I thought it was worth mentioning that point at least once. And here's where I want to end. In 1979, more than a half century after she'd received her two degrees from Penn, Sadie gave the commencement speech at Swarthmore College. And in that speech, she told the story of having visited her husband, Raymond Pace Alexander, at Harvard Law School sometime in the mid-1920s. Now, this was after she herself had already finished law school, but Raymond had made an appointment for the two of them to meet with the Harvard Law Dean, Ezra Pound. Here's my colleague, Claire Manabog, one final time. 
reading a passage from that commencement speech. On the appointed day, we arrived at Dean Pound's office at about 8.30 a.m., and we were warmly received. At about 8.45 a.m., as Raymond had often told me, the dean started to walk to his classroom, being followed by large numbers of students asking him questions or just listening as best they could to his replies. When we got to the door of the classroom, Dean Pound started to shake hands and bid us a pleasant visit in Cambridge. Whereupon my husband spoke up, saying, Dean Pound, I brought my wife so she could hear you give one lecture. She has graduated from Penn Law School and is admitted to the bar. Whereupon Dean Pound replied, Alexander, don't you know no women can be admitted to the law school of Harvard University? He proceeded to tell about the daughter of a professor who applied and was refused admission, which almost wrecked the faculty. Raymond, with hesitancy in his voice, replied, No, I did not realize the depth of the discrimination. I guess I experienced so much freedom in law school that I never stopped to realize it was all for men, only. And so, after shaking hands and the dean expressing pleasure at our visit, Raymond and I departed to lick our wounds and discuss a plan of action. And Sadie then closed that speech with the following lines, which I'll read myself. My charge to you young men and women entering the highly competitive society of this age is, turn what appears to be adversity into an opportunity to rise above the pettiness in life, demonstrate your ability to achieve in the face of trials and tribulations, and forgive those who know not what they do. This podcast was produced and edited by Amy Keene. Amy and I reported it together, and we'd like to say a special thanks to Mark Lloyd at the University of Pennsylvania for opening up the Alexander family's archives to us. Thanks also to Derek Hamilton for a really helpful discussion of stratification economics, only a little bit of which you heard. And finally, an extra special thanks to Nina Banks for the conversation and, of course, for introducing us to Sadie Alexander in the first place. We'll see you here again next week for another episode of Alpha Chat. Alpha Chat.